The Exchange Podcast is brought to you in part by the University System of New Hampshire in partnership with its four institutions around the state. Visit usnh.edu slash yours to learn what you can accomplish here. From NHPR, I'm Peter Biello, and this is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange. At midnight tonight, the state of emergency that has been in place since the beginning of the pandemic pandemic is expiring. With warmer temperatures comes the return of toxic algae blooms on New Hampshire lakes, and the exchange is ending production at the end of this month. This is the last time I will be hosting the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup. Later in the program, we'll talk with NHPR President Jim Schachter about the decision to end this program. And your questions or comments about any of these stories are welcome. Give us a call now. Our number is one 800 892-6477. You can use Facebook, tweet us, or email. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. And with us for this part of the program, Ali Pham. She's NHPR's health and equity reporter. Ali, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Also with us is NHPR's Casey McDermott. She's our investigative data reporter. Welcome, Casey. Happy to be here. So let's start talking about uh, things announced yesterday at Governor Sununu's press conference. Uh, He announced yesterday that the state of emergency will expire tonight. He'll not be renewing it. Uh, Ali, why is this significant? Yeah, I mean, I think it says a lot about where the state is with the pandemic. Um, We've had a state of emergency for nearly 15 months, and uh, it's finally ending tonight. Um, The state will still be operating under a public health incident model. And what I think the combination of those two things really says is that hey, the pandemic is still here, but it's not as dire of a situation anymore. It's not an emergency. Um, We have things kind of more under control. And, you know, I think when you look at the COVID data in New Hampshire, it really does bear that out where, you know, we're still seeing cases, but they are the lowest they've been since last fall. The test positivity rates dropped around 70% in the last two months. And, you know, we've got vaccines now and and just over 60% of the total population has received at least one dose. Okay, so what will actually change as a result of the end of the state of emergency? Yeah, I mean, for for most people, nothing drastic is going to happen tonight when the clock strikes midnight. I mean, day-to-day life is not really changing for anyone. But, um, you know, that said, the state of emergency is significant because it, it does give the governor more power, you know, flexibility to move things like funding and, and just make... Um, decisions. It also allows the health department to institute measures like quarantines and other safety measures. So that kind of extra power um, that the government or that the governor has in a state of emergency, that's going away. Okay. And you said there was something called a public health incident model now in place? Yeah. So I think that will just give um, the Department of Health and Human Services um, kind of more flexibility to just coordinate efforts um, with health providers as the COVID pandemic continues here. Okay. Well, thank you for that clarification. We have been hearing a lot about the Delta variant. This is the one first detected in India. It's now the dominant strain in the UK. Has it been detected here in New Hampshire? Is it a cause for concern here? Yeah, WMUR reported this week that it has been detected here in New Hampshire. And, you know, definitely, I think, like some of the other variants of concern, it is of concern. I mean, it's more transmissible. Dr. Fauci has warned that it may also be associated with more severe disease and a higher risk of hospitalization. Um, But, you know, also 
That said, um, it's a variant of a disease that we know a lot more about. We know, you know, masking works. We know vaccines are still effective. So, um, you know, I think, you know, all the more reason to to go get vaccinated. All right. Well, listeners, we're talking about the state of the fight against COVID-19 in New Hampshire, and we'd love to have your thoughts. Perhaps you have something to say about the end of the state of emergency or the way the state is responding generally to COVID-19. We'd love to hear from you. Our phone number, one 800 892-6477. That's 1-800-892-6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. And to you, Casey McDermott, Governor Sununu has been celebrating New Hampshire's COVID-19 vaccination rates, saying it was the fastest in the country. So, Casey, does the data bear that out? Well, it's um, it's complicated. Um, so I, I think, you know, to step back... Um, what we need to kind of start with is that um, there are a few different sources for vaccine data. Um, you can go to the state's dashboard, or you can also look at the CDC's dashboard. And the CDC's dashboard is really the one that a lot of people have been using to make comparisons uh, across different states. And that dashboard, you know, early on this year showed New Hampshire kind of lagging behind other states, but something happened and we shot up rather quickly in early April kind of leapfrogging over other states. And that's when you started to hear Governor Sununu and other people, um, you know, claim that we had the fastest vaccination rate in the nation. Um, and according to the data at that time, um, the CDC's data, at least, um, that did appear to be true at several points. It looked like we, you know, were leading the nation in terms of the percent of our population that had at least one dose. It also looked at times that we were way ahead of the nation in terms of our efficiency of vaccine usage. So that meant like, you know, the percent of vaccines that we used relative to the percent that were available to us. Um, however, over, you know, the last month or so, the CDC has actually revised New Hampshire's data downward several times. Um, and, you know, after talking to the state, um, it sounds like there were some data errors where, you know, data was being reported kind of du in duplication. So that made the numbers look higher than they actually were. We don't have a firm sense right now of how much that inflated New Hampshire's totals. We do have some graphics on our website if you go to nhpr.org where you can kind of see the change in New Hampshire's standing a little bit more clearly. But suffice it to say, we may not have been, in fact, leading the nation, um, you know, as 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 much as the governor claimed. And also it's worth pointing out that, you know, as recently as last week, Governor Sununu said, we're leading the, the nation in many ways in terms of vaccine distribution. At that time, that was not in fact true whenever you looked at the data. We were, you know, near the top on some metrics, but we were not at the top of the country. What, what metrics was he referring to when he said we were leading in, in many ways? It's, it's unclear, to be honest, but if you look at the graphs that we have on our website and if you look at, you know, June 3rd was was the date when when he indicated that we were leading the nation, um, we were not leading the nation in terms of the percent of population with one dose. We were not leading the nation in terms of the percent of the population um, with, you know, full vaccinations and nor were we leading the nation in terms of, you know, the um, percent of our vaccine supply that we had used. Well, let me ask you, Ali Pham, because I know you've been covering this and asking questions about it, why were there discrepancies between the two sets of numbers, the state's numbers and the CDC? Do we know how, Casey mentioned duplication, do we have any details on how that happened? And is there something else that's a factor? 
Yeah, we're not totally sure um, exactly what had happened. As Casey mentioned, the state has told us that um, it was a, a pharmacy, that pharmacies were reporting their data to the state as well as the federal government, resulting in some duplicate counts. Um, but you know, it's it's still unclear as well if that was accounting for all of these data errors or or not. I see. Okay, and well, if we're going to talk about whether or not New Hampshire is doing well compared to other states, let's talk about that. You know, how is New Hampshire actually doing, Allie, at vaccinating its residents compared with other states? Yeah. So if we look at the CDC data now. Um, you know, now that it's been revised compared to other states, um, New Hampshire is doing well. I mean, the national average of fully vaccinated people right now is around 43%. Um, in New Hampshire, we've got around 53% of the population fully vaccinated. But, you know, if we zoom in on New England, New Hampshire is, is kind of falling behind both in terms of first shots administered and um, folks who are fully vaccinated. Okay. And do we know why New Hampshire is where it is with respect to these numbers? Is there any explanation the state is giving? I'm sorry, Allie, are you there? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah. No, I'm... I, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the... I mean, you know, as Casey pointed out, the state has kind of continued to say that New Hampshire is, is doing really, really well. And, um, you know, I don't think they see a whole, take a whole lot of issue with, with any of these numbers. Okay. Well, where is the state focusing its energy right now in terms of vaccinations? Yeah, so they are, um, one of the things they're doing is continuing to transition vaccines away from their own sites and, and further into the hands of primary care providers. So really trying to get vaccines into a place um, that people are more familiar with and trying to tap into trusted relationships folks might have with their doctors. Okay, and uh, are there other problems that still need to be addressed with respect to vaccines and distribution and, and reaching people who might have a hard time getting the vaccine? Yeah, absolutely, there are. And I mean, I don't think any of these are particularly unique to New Hampshire. It's kind of some of the same challenges that we're seeing across the country where there are persisting racial disparities in terms of um, who has gotten the vaccine so far, um, misinformation, vaccine hesitancy, and, and access issues. And, you know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the state's kind of core strategy um, for getting vaccines out has, has remained pretty consistent. And so they're, you know, continuing some of these mobile clinics um, and they are, you know, continuing to increase the amount of, of sites that people can can get vaccinated at. Mm -hmm. And the state has has had a vaccine equity allocation program uh, throughout the vaccine distribution process. Uh, Ali or maybe Casey, any updates on how that program is going? Did the governor or anybody else as part of state government talk about that program yesterday at the press conference? You know, we actually, um, we are waiting on some updated data from the state about the equity allocation. Um, so we hope to have some some more information on that soon to look a little bit more closely at who that program has been able to reach so far. Um, so I don't think we have like specific details at this point, but it's definitely something that we're taking a closer look at. I see. Uh, another story the NHPR newsroom is following with respect to this is that New Hampshire health officials say they're not requesting 
more of the COVID-19 vaccine this week as the state continues to have an excess of vaccine doses. Officials say the vaccine has a shelf life and they don't want to waste any doses as the demand for the vaccine in the state has declined. Uh, Governor Sununu said at the press conference yesterday that he's still not in favor of offering vaccine incentives as as other states have done. In other words, offering us uh, a chance to to offering people a chance to get the vaccine if they can, uh, for example, get, a, I guess, in other states, it's beer in, in some places, it's tickets to events. Uh, I guess Governor Sununu is not interested in doing that, Casey. It does not sound like it, certainly not. Um, And, you know, just on that note, according to, you know, recent data, we are kind of in the middle of the road when it comes to like the amount of our vaccine supply that we're using. Um, So again, unclear, you know, how the state plans to kind of address that beyond the the measures that Ali outlined, but it seems like they're just trying to kind of keep going on a lot of their, um, you know, outreach strategies and public campaigns that they've had going for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to, to ask both of you, uh, maybe first to you, Casey, uh, what will you be following with respect to COVID-19 in the weeks to come? Well, I mean, I think, you know, as Ali indicated, um, we're at a little bit of an inflection point. Um, we still are trying to kind of better understand a lot of aspects of the pandemic over the last year. So we have, you know, a few pending data requests into the state about various aspects of the pandemic that we will, um, you know, continue to, to try to push for more information on. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll certainly share more information as soon as we can about those. I see. And how about you, Ali? What will you be following in the weeks to come? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll continue to look at um, the vaccine rollout, which, you know, as we've talked about, has really been um, slowing and just kind of keep tabs as well on the state's um, vaccine supply and that kind of concern that you had just brought up, Peter, of, you know, um, there are doses that the state's concerned about, you know, kind of expiring. So, you know, w- what is going to happen when when those really do hit their expiration date? All right. Well, NHPR's Ali Pham and Casey McDermott, thanks to both of you for being on the program today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, thanks, Peter. Some other news stories that the NHPR newsroom has been following this week, uh, a bill that will release a list with the names of more than 270 law enforcement officers with credibility issues is heading to the governor's desk. The House yesterday agreed to the Senate's version of the bill. Under the plan, any officers on the so-called Lori list will have 180 days to appeal their status. After that, the names will become public. The bill is a compromise between advocates for greater police transparency and the police union's Also, the attorney general's office says no criminal charges will be filed against the Concord School District's administration related to its handling of Howie Leung. In 2019, Leung was arrested for sexually assaulting a child. At the time, he was employed at Concord High School. The attorney general says it subpoenaed thousands of pages of records from the school district, but found no evidence administrators failed to report criminal activity. A district internal investigation found significant shortcomings in how it handled allegations made against Leung, who has pleaded not guilty. And a bill seeking justice for run-over cats in New Hampshire is heading to the governor's desk, minus the name of the animal that inspired it. State law already requires drivers who injure or kill dogs to notify police or the animal's owners, but Representative Darrell Abbas sponsored a bill to give cats equal footing after the death of his five-year-old cat, Arrow. The House passed the bill in April, as did the Senate, but the latter objected to it, objected rather to dubbing it Arrow's Law. The House agreed yesterday to drop the name and advance the bill to Governor Sununu, who has said he will sign it. Of course, you can always check out NHPR's 
uh, latest news updates at nhpr.org. And I want to turn now to NHPR's Annie Ropeek. She's our energy and environment reporter because she's been covering a variety of stories this week. Uh, Annie, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Annie, I, I wanted to start our conversation by talking about the drought uh, still going on here in New Hampshire, as it has been for much of the past year. How much of the state is in drought right now? So it's the top third or so of the state, the North Country, which is actually unusual for the past year. It's been more concentrated on the seacoast in southern New Hampshire. But as of the National Drought Monitor update yesterday, it's the top third of the state that is in a moderate drought, and the rest of the state is rated abnormally dry. And you said that's that's unusual. Usually it's the southern part of the state that ends up in drought? Yeah, well, not just generally, but in the past year, the seacoast has been one of the more affected places. Actually, in the past couple of months, it's been like the Connecticut River Valley. So it moves around. You know, it depends a lot on just where there's rainfall, other weather patterns. But just overall, I mean, I think it's safe to say that all of New Hampshire has been in some form of drought for most of the past year. Uh, and I should say this is our third severe drought in the past 20 years or so, which you know, people here aren't really used to these dry spells, but it seems to be becoming an increasing problem. Yeah, okay. So so what are towns doing to try to mitigate the impacts of the drought? Well, at the height of the drought, when it was at its most severe last year, we saw at least 150 towns that had uh, either voluntary or mandatory water restrictions in place. That's usually a limit on outdoor watering, so garden watering and that kind of thing, sprinklers. Um, right now, there's only a couple of places where that has sort of come back into play. Dover, the city of Dover, has been saying since April that residents should be following voluntary outdoor water use restrictions. Uh, the Aquarian Water Company on the seacoast just put those in place for Rye, Hampton, and Northampton, a voluntary water schedule for two days a week of outdoor watering, depending on your address. And the city of Portsmouth has said that it is also considering um, putting restrictions in place depending on how rainfall goes in the coming weeks. But really, you know, we're hearing this message from water managers that, and we've been hearing it for a few months now, that if we don't continue to get more sustained rain, that there could be more restrictions to come to prevent wells from running dry, supply wells, private wells. And, you know, that we've been just teetering on the edge of a more severe situation here, and we haven't really, it hasn't gotten significantly worse, but it also hasn't gotten significantly better. So they're still kind of waiting and seeing. Okay. So what, how would they define sustained rain? What, what would that need to look like? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, so one of the effects of climate change is that we see these heavier bouts of rain, so a big dump of rain, you know, three or four inches in a day or a matter of hours, um, and then no rain for several days. And that's not good for drought recovery. The ground, when it's really dry, can't absorb a ton of water at a time. So you need sort of the low and slow approach. You would need like a nice light rain, you know, a sort of a comfortable rain for a matter of days. Or you would need like a week period where it rains a little bit, you know, you get maybe an inch like every day. That would help uh, some of the groundwater levels recover, the soil moisture recover, and it would make the ground more receptive to more rain, you know, as it continues to fall. So right now it's just been too volatile, and that is a trend we see with climate change, these sort of big sporadic spikes in precipitation um, where you do have more rain overall, but it's just coming in these patterns that are not really conducive to good water retention by our ecosystems, and that affects drinking water. Yeah, I'm looking at the weather report for Berlin right now since you mentioned the North Country, Annie, and uh, for the next 10 days or so, it's got two days with 
possible rain, and then everything else is just clouds and sun. Not not necessarily the kind of sustained rain you were talking about coming to the North Country, or at least to Berlin. No, I do not think so. Yeah. Well, Annie, hang on, because we're going to take a quick break. And after the break, we'd love to talk with you a little bit more about uh, some uh, effects of drought, which is, you know, the risk of wildfires, but also toxic algae blooms. Uh, in New Hampshire's lakes and also the restoration of Great Bay. Listeners, if you have questions for Annie about these topics, give us a call now so we can get you in the queue. Our phone number, 1-800-892-6477. That's 1-800-892-NHPR. You can also send your question or comment by email. Our address is exchange at nhpr.org. This is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back. Monday on The Exchange, Laura Knoy will sit on the other side of the mic as I interview her about her 25 years as host of The Exchange. We'll discuss the show's origins and moments that have stood out over the years, and we'll celebrate Laura's career and impact on New Hampshire. So tell us, what are some of your favorite discussions or moments on The Exchange? Email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org, or leave a voice memo at 1-800-892-6477. And tune in for that conversation on Monday, live at 9. I'm Peter Biello, and this is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. Thank you so much for tuning in. NHPR's Annie Ropeek is still with us. She's our energy and environment reporter, and we'd like to talk a little bit about uh, toxic algae blooms in this part of the program, as well as the Great Bay restoration. What questions do you have about this? Give us a call now. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. 1-800-892-6477. You can also email us. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Uh, before we get too far away from the subject of droughts, Annie, you've been reporting on that. You had some time on Morning Edition today talking about the rise of short-term droughts due to climate change and also the risk of wildfires in the Northeast. Uh, what have you been reporting on in that area? Yeah, that's right. So uh, people may be reading in the news that, you know, we're heading for another severe fire season out west due to their drought, but we are not immune from this in the east. Uh, The overwhelming message from forest managers, fire officials that I've been talking to, you know, since the uh, drought began last year is it can happen here. And it wouldn't, this kind of fire wouldn't necessarily look the same as a big wildfire in California. We don't have the same forest patterns, the same ecosystems here, but Wildfires can happen in the Northeast, and especially when it's really dry out. You know, the message is all it takes is a campfire that you don't put out all the way or a cigarette that you toss down in the woods um, for something really dangerous to happen, potentially near where people live. So I've been reporting on um, some wildfire uh, prevention efforts that are going on in the White Mountain National Forest, right on the edge of the forest where it intersects with homes in Conway. And uh, we'll have some Um, reporting that I'm really excited about around that and um, other parts of the country where you might not expect to be hearing about wildfire um, on NPR in the next month or so. Okay. And are there any fires of note uh, that have happened this year in New Hampshire, or uh, has it been pretty quiet so far? There have been scattered sort of campfires that have not been put out and have needed to be sort of contained, little brush fires here and there. There was a structure fire um, recently that started as a brush fire so it's a normal fire season so far. You know, these things are definitely happening all the time. And I think the folks in the White Mountains are, you know, they're on fire duty. This is the time of year where they look for that. And you see those signs out on the road every day that say whatever the fire danger is, the smoke bear signs. And 
you know, those mean something. Those mean be more careful with your brush burning. Get the permit that you're required to get from the town before you burn in your yard because it is really dry out there and those things can spread. Yeah, good reminder for people to burn responsibly if they're if they're going to do it. Uh, Annie Ropik, I wanted to ask you about toxic algae, bloom, toxic algae blooms as well because uh, these are popping up here and there. Uh, remind our listeners what they are and, and the, the latest news we've been hearing about them. Sure. So these are cyanobacteria blooms. Sometimes you call them blue-green algae. It's that sort of scummy, swirly-looking algae that forms on the top of a pond or a lake, sometimes by the shore. Um, and they these are a kind of algae that produce a neurotoxin. So if you touch them, if you swim in them, if you drink the water, uh, it can make you really sick, and it can make your pets sick, your livestock sick. So if you see that sort of greenish scum on the surface of a pond, best to stay away, not to touch it, let the state know, and they'll come and test and see if it actually is toxic algae. And they'll put up an advisory that says don't swim at that beach until it's cleared up. Um, And we're seeing an unusual number of reports of these for this early in the season. So the state starts testing for these and monitoring, putting out those advisories on lakes and ponds um, around Memorial Day. And they usually just have a few reports, usually um, around this time of year. You know, this kind of stuff does happen in the spring, the same way you see any sort of spring growth. But um, the weather conditions appear to be just right this year for a high number of blooms. And also there's increasing public awareness of these blooms, and so they're getting more reports of them. So we had more than a dozen um, reports of algae blooms and a few advisories at a time um, over much of the past couple of weeks since Memorial Day. Why are they happening earlier than normal this year? So it actually does tie into a lot of what we've been talking about with the drought, for uh, at least partially. So um, drought creates low water levels that can make the water more stagnant. It doesn't move around as much. And that's a great condition to help create these blooms. The algae likes to grow in water that's more still, that's warmer. Um, and so all of those kinds of factors um, could precipitate more blooms. Also, just the weather patterns we've been having. We had a big, you know, rain over Memorial Day, and then it got really hot and really calm and dry right after that. And I've been told that's sort of a perfect storm for algae growth, that, you know, you had that sort of whiplash from the rainfall, um, and that could have helped some of these blooms get started. Um, and again, you know, just the public awareness factor, is it's sort of hard to measure, but we have seen an overall increase in Reports of toxic algae in the state over the past 20 years or so, including this year. Um, and the state is thinking that people are just getting better about reporting them and better at spotting it. And so that helps kind of boost the numbers, too. Yeah. So what causes these? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of factors that enable them to, to grow, but uh, they, they don't grow everywhere. Why do they grow in some places and not others? It's, you know, it's, I think it really depends on the, um, the kind of pond, like what else is going on in there, you know, a sort of degraded water body can be more conducive to these. So if its oxygen levels are a little bit off or maybe there's an invasive in there that's kind of throwing the ecosystem out of whack, um, those create good conditions for these blooms. But, um, you know, the state is still learning about them. There's a lot of interesting research going on about them at Dartmouth. Um, They've been doing drone surveys to try to get a better sense of where these blooms are growing and what factors are, are sort of driving them. So, um, you know, it's it's sort of an evolving area of science, which is really interesting, and that goes along with the increasing public awareness. So I think, you know, as we continue to watch this trend, we will learn a lot more about, you know, potentially where to look out for them, maybe get better at predicting them or, like, uh, targeting certain kinds of lakes and pond ecosystems for 
interventions to help prevent these in the future. Yeah, and uh, this is certainly not a problem unique to New Hampshire. I mean, in Vermont, for example, when I was in Vermont, uh, there was a lot of reporting done on these algae blooms, and there were connections to uh, farm runoff and, uh, you know, excess phosphorus uh, running off farms and then ending up in water bodies and phosphorus being a pretty good food for the kind of algae that glow, that grows. Is that is that a factor here as well? That's right. Yeah, nitrogen and nutrient runoff, nitrogen and phosphorus, which does come from farm runoff and, and other sources like wastewater, is one of those things that can, you know, affect water quality, affect oxygen in the water. Um, it's a big thing that does degrade a lot of our lake and pond uh, and tidal ecosystems um, in New Hampshire. And Vermont is a really interesting case. They're actually looking there at connections between the rise in cyanobacteria and potentially Lou Gehrig's disease, which can result from this neurotoxin exposure. They're thinking about making a registry of, um, of, of Lou Gehrig's cases to try to see if there is a connection there, because, you know, that could be a really serious outcome from that neurotoxin exposure. And they want to see if there's a definitive link between more algae blooms and more cases of that disease. Okay. My last question for you on, on algae, and then I want to ask you about the restoration of sure. Great Bay. This is so fascinating. I just have to ask one more. Um, it, when the state discovers that there is, in fact, a, a toxic algae bloom in a particular body of water, is there some kind of remediation that the state can do or has done that is effective? Good question. I don't believe so. I believe they just sort of close the area to swimming and fishing and kind of let it go away on its own. You know, they're they're really cyclical, like they bloom and then they die. Um, and And so I don't think that there is, but I could be wrong about that. There could be some sort of intervention or treatment that I don't know about. So, you know, scientists listening, if you want to send me a note about that, feel free. Yeah, p- listeners, please do get in touch if you if you, if you you have an insight on that. The, our address is exchange at nhpr.org, and we can always forward that along to Annie if we've moved on on the air to a different topic. Uh, speaking of a different topic, uh, let's let's talk about the restoration of Great Bay. Uh, Annie, what, what prob- problems are plaguing this area? Well, nitrogen and phosphorus well, are go. big ones, like yeah. we were just talking about. Yeah, so... Uh, so w- w- pollution largely from uh, wastewater plants and all the towns around Great Bay, so other factors like stormwater runoff, farm runoff, fertilizer, septic systems, all kinds of problems like that uh, all run into Great Bay and are degrading the ecosystem, you know, creating some of these degraded conditions like we've been talking about. Uh, the warming water and the drought doesn't help, of course, and so you have sort of this perfect storm um, that has really been hurting Great Bay and hurting the plants and animals that live there and making the bay sort of less able to do the services that it provides for us, like protecting us from floods during storms and helping us grow oysters and that kind of thing, um, have all really been in decline for the past, you know, 20 or 30 years. And so, um, so this has been the focus of restoration efforts for a really long time, and they've taken some interesting turns recently. Okay. Well, and, and you've been covering some restoration and mitigation efforts. What do those look like? So the uh, towns around the Bay have a new agreement with the federal government and some nonprofits and science, scientists in the area to take sort of a new approach to restoration on the Bay. They've been really focused on their wastewater plants until now because, you know, it's sort of the easiest lever to pull. It's regulated by the feds. You can just pour money into it, upgrade it as much as you possibly can. Um, and try to limit the uh, pollution that's coming out of those plants that flow into Great Bay. Um, they've done a lot of that, and it hasn't helped enough. And so they're now starting to look at other factors that are a little harder to control. They're a little more diffuse, things like stormwater runoff or fertilizer use. 
they call them non-point sources. Um, and they're starting to look at sort of pulling those levers as a way to help the Bay in a more organized way. So this new permit from the federal government um, sets one limit on uh, things like nitrogen for the Bay that all the towns have to meet together. This is a really unusual approach. The EPA says it's potentially the first time they've ever done a permit like this in the country. Um, and all the towns get to decide on their own how they want to meet that limit. And it doesn't have to just be at their wastewater plants. They can do fertilizer ordinances or new stormwater systems or invest in septic upgrades or all kinds of things like that. Um, and people are really excited about this. They are excited to try some new things, to have better monitoring to see if those things are working, um, to work with scientists and nonprofits to um, attempt some new interve interventions for the Bay that haven't been tried in sort of force before um, and see if they can really restore the ecosystem. And I think there's been a lot of new optimism behind those efforts. Well, NHPR's Annie Ropey, thank you so much for being on the program today. We really appreciate it. And thanks so much for having me. Uh, still to come on the program, uh, the exchange, of course, is ending production at the end of this month. Uh, we'll speak with NHPR CEO Jim Schachter about this decision. Uh, if you have questions or comments, please do uh, send us an email. The address is exchange at nhpr.org. Or give us a call now to get in the queue. Our number, 1-800-892-6477. That's 1-800-892-NHPR, NHPR, excuse me. Uh, and we're going to turn now to the North Country with Barbara Tatro. She's the editor of the Berlin Sun, and she recently announced her retirement after 28 years there. Uh, listeners, if you've got questions for Barbara about her time at the Sun, give us a call now, 1-800-892-6477. And Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, why did you decide that right now is the best time for you to retire? Oh, it was just time, time to pass the reins to a new generation. And also, I'm going to stay involved. I'm going to start to, uh, I'm going to freelance for them or, or work part-time. But, you know, I've been doing this job a long time. And before I worked for the Sun, I worked for a couple other newspapers. So it's been over 40 years. It's just time to slow down and, and take a look and do some other things. Okay. Like and some other types of writing. Other types of writing. Tell, what other types of writing will you be doing? Well, maybe some long-form magazine pieces or, or some family pieces. Well, that's exciting. Long form can be fun. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about some of the favorite stories that you've covered while while you've been reporting for The Sun? Well, there's just been, uh, just been a time of change here, and I've had sort of a front row seat watching the mills close, watching the region trying to revitalize itself. And of course, it's always fun for the, when the primary comes around. I think I've met every president campaigning up here since Carter, except for President Trump. He never never came to Coas County. Well that that, that extraordinary honor to be able to meet so, so many dignitaries as, as a as a reporter here. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, what problems is the Sun currently facing that you hope uh, they'll work to address? Well, you know, like everybody else, the economy here is is bad and newspapers as most people know depend on advertising, and when businesses are suffering, um, there's not as many advertising dollars. But I think that people here really support having a newspaper. I mean, we went to two days a week, and I think that we're stable right now. And uh, I think people really like having a community newspaper to 
follow up on council and planning board and human interest stories. I think there's a connection that maybe doesn't exist for larger cities, but you know, people will call us up and say, uh, you know, you didn't make it to such and such, but it's okay. I took some pictures for you, or you know, can you come and cover this? So I think there's a there's a sense of uh, ownership that the community has mm-hmm. of, uh, of these papers. And, and and in many ways, Barbara, you've you've become really a voice for the North Country. What stories happening there do you think deserve more attention? I think maybe the the story of the uh, the change that's happened here. You know, the Berlin Gorm area is really a beautiful area, carved sort of like a valley in the middle of the mountains. And over the last, uh, I, I know you had Anne on, Annie on a few minutes ago, and coming up is the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. And the rivers and lakes here are beautiful now, clean. I mean, some of them have hydro dams, but the water quality has been greatly improved. Since the mill's closing, the air quality has greatly improved. There used to be sort of an odor associated with the pulp mill that was pretty pretty strong, and that's gone. So when you come to Berlin and Guam now, you see that... Uh, it's a different, different place, and uh, it's heavily attracting motorized recreation, ATVs, of course. But there's a lot of other uh, hiking, canoeing, kayaking, mountain biking, walking. It's uh, and there's a lot of focus on on that as well. I mean, a lot of people focus on the ATVs, but uh, there's a lot of emphasis on making them walkable communities up here. And, and Barbara, before we let you go, just want to ask, what have you enjoyed most about working at The Sun? Just a variety of stories that I cover and the people and, uh, and uh, getting up every day and not knowing exactly what's going to happen that day. And, uh, and, and that's been just great. And people have been uh, supportive for the most part. And I have to add, as I'm talking on your show, on the exchange, that I'm really sad to hear that the exchange is shutting down, and I'll add my voice to those who wish it would continue, because I think that was a great forum for a statewide conversation about these types of issues. Well, Barbara, we certainly appreciate your comments and also appreciate you as a guest here in your service as a Berlin Sun editor. Barbara Tatro, thank you very much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it, too. Coming up, we'll talk with NHPR CEO Jim Schachter about the decision to cease production of The Exchange at the end of this month. What questions do you have for him? Give us a call now. Our number is 1-800-892-6477. 1-800-892-6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. This is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange on NHPR. I'm Peter Biello. Joining us now is NHPR's president and CEO, Jim Schachter. 
Schachter announced last week that the station has decided to end production of The Exchange, heard daily at this time for 25 years. The announcement came following Laura Canoy's decision to retire, which was announced in May. Jim, thank you very much for coming on the air to talk about this. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, and listeners, what questions or comments do you have about NHPR's decision? Call now, one 800 892 6477. You can also email exchange at nhpr.org. So after 25 years in the host chair, Laura Canoy announced in May that she was ending her run. She plans on writing a novel and enjoying her, her newfound pursuit. Uh, at that time, NHPR said it would begin the process of recruiting a new host, uh, but now the station is reversing course and will end the program. Uh, Jim, what happened in the last month to change your mind? Well, With a little bit of time and reflection on our strategy, we decided to to take a different course. It was sort of the the natural and automatic response to Laura's Laura's decision, which which caught me by surprise, I have to say, to immediately uh, think about how to to, uh, begin the the pretty difficult task of of replacing her uh, in, in that chair. And as we thought about it a bit more and really looked looked ahead as to how we could do the the best job possible in our role of being New Hampshire's you know primary statewide source of of news and information and of building community connections, that that, that there was a, a different uh, course to take. You know, our what we have to do and what I have to do as the as the as the decision maker ultimately at NHPR is to look at the future, see what it holds, and make choices that ensure that, that we as an organization uh, can be strong and sustainable. And what, what this very hard decision allows us to do, we think, is to sort of uh, uh, align our, our staffing, which is the, the biggest cost. It's the thing that when people support NHPR, like during our current pledge drive, that what you're basically paying for is the people of NHPR. We want to align those people with the ways that we can grow the audience now and into the future so that we really put ourselves on solid ground. Mm-hmm. And um, for for us, that means a continuing investment in trying to reach audiences um, where they are and how they how they use information. I was just listening to you, t- to you talk with 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 Barbara about, the, the Berlin paper cutting back uh, to two days a week. Newspapers all around New Hampshire, all around America, kind of lost, lost their connection um, with their audiences. People's lifestyles changed as people started consuming the news um, online, as people, people's habits of like the, the, the habit of getting up in the morning um, and, and sitting with the paper while you had your coffee started to, to get cut into by by uh, by people's uh, work days and just as 30 years before the habit of ending your day in in an easy chair with the afternoon mm-hmm. newspaper had been eroded by more people going to work and more people turning on the tv sure. so can i can i ask we, you we about habits then uh, only because like is there a listener habit that you've observed that suggests yeah. to you that a, a 9 a.m live call-in talk show is, is no longer in line with what what listeners want or need I, I think it's I think it's you know because because our budget requires us to make choices. Um, looking at that nine at nine this nine a.m. hour and the number of people we can reach this way and the number of people that we connect this way versus those that we can connect sort of 
on their own time um, through, uh, through the web, through on-demand audio, things that NHPR has been investing in for years, um, through the tactics that we've ad adopted in our newsroom to engage people like the thousands and thousands of people who respond to our surveys that help us uh, help us, you know, set our news agenda, help us uh, allow people to be eyewitnesses um, whenever and wherever they are and to share their views. In a time of hard choices, it, that's just the choice that we, we've had to make. And what I, what I would add, Peter, and I don't mean to, to just filibuster you on this, what I would add is that we really do believe, and it's a test, we'll see how it goes. I, I, I hope people I hope we've earned people's trust and that they'll give us a chance with this change. We really think that extending morning edition uh, into this nine o'clock hour, Monday through Friday, you know, um, and, 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 and filling the, 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 the period that the exchange, the weekly news roundup have been on with our new show where we can present the journalists who, you, who you, you've heard on the exchange, where we can give a forum to the political leaders and advocates and uh, and nonprofit groups that that have often been guests on these shows, when we can hear from reporters for other other organizations, just like reporters for our organization, mm -hmm. we think that that's a venue where we can where we can really serve the radio audience, even as we're investing in these in reaching audiences other ways and building the audience for the future. Mm -hmm. uh, it, worth pointing out that our, our friends at Vermont Public Radio had to make a similar decision when when their longtime host of Vermont Edition, Jane Lindholm announced she would step away from that role last year. They did not end that program. VPR hired two co-hosts to replace Jane. Also, Maine, Connecticut, the Boston stations, the New York station, WNYC, where you where you worked, they, they all have daily call-in programs. Uh, is this not, to some extent, a staple of what public radio stations are supposed to offer to their listeners? Um. I don't know about supposed to. There's 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 no guidebook. There are stations around the country that have made a choice similar to ours, and the um, I think I think the critical thing that we have to think about is how do we how do we continue to do a, a, the jobs that a talk show does for the state for a community. How do we how do we reinvent um, the way we do our our work so that we can reach more people, reach people who who aren't available to, uh, to, to call and participate in a show that's, that is um, on an, an, at a set time, an hour a day when many, many people are in work or in school or, or otherwise, otherwise engaged. Uh, we're not walking away from, from creating forums. Uh, we're not walking away from, from lifting voices we're gonna we're gonna experiment and do it in 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 new ways. And you know, um, you and your colleagues in our in our newsroom um, and in our in our podcast unit, supported by people all over NHPR. Um, I think we we are opening up, and it's scary. And I know that it's scary for our colleagues. And I know that it's it's you know it's it's it feels uncomfortable for the people who are our loyal listeners at this hour. And and I I can't thank you enough for 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 listening out there. Um, but we're, we're opening up. We're opening up a creative canvas to try new things, and that's it, the risk of us of us standing pat and not changing is is much higher than the risk of of changing and trying new things. Uh, we got a, uh, this note from a caller who could not stay on the line. The caller asks, "Why did NHPR not collect feedback from the audience on this decision?" 
Well, we 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 are collecting feedback from the audience, and I'm spending. Well, now time now with- we are, but 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 I mean, I think this caller was referring to before the decision was made. Uh, was was there an effort to collect feedback from the audience before this decision was made? Um, there 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 was no literal and specific effort to to collect feedback on 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 this question. I think that the decision that we made was based on, you know, everything from from uh, audience data to are you know strategic planning efforts that have been underway for for uh, many months and that are continuing in dialogue with our board and again trying to trying to plot the um, plot a future for NHPR that allows us to to be sustainable financially and to thrive by finding ways to 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 make our audience uh, grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you told the stations that this move was being done in part. Uh, to save money, uh, are you able to tell us how much money this move will save? We really don't go down into into the into the the budget at that level because it in effect ends up saying, you know, since most of the costs are are, are people's salaries, I don't think it's it's um, it's right to 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 disclose information that would kind of put people's salaries out there. But it's it's a it's a it's a it's a meaningful savings that allows us to be strong financially. We got this note from Nancy who says, the exchange is important to the state. It is the only way we get an in-depth look at what goes around here. Why on earth do you think more national news is needed? Please reconsider. The exchange is a big part of my sustaining membership. Uh, to that to that last point, Jim, fr- from Nancy, uh, to what extent are you worried that the cancellation of the exchange will, will affect uh, uh, donations to the station? Um. I, I worry all the time about everything we do and how it how it's going to affect our um, our connection to, to the to the audience and people's uh, loyal support. Um, and I as I I would say to the people who are listening now and who who are regular listeners um, at at nine a.m. that um, that the NHPR you support is is an organization that. Um, that does work that that no one else does across the state. Your support for NHPR um, um, makes possible um, something like um, 30 journalists uh, in our in our content areas who are covering topics and and issues and concerns that that are local stories that are stories that people in New Hampshire care deeply about that are telling stories of New Hampshire all around the state on many platforms and telling them like Annie did on, on national NPR this morning to, um, to audiences all around the country. And that's, and that's what, 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 what you support when you support NHPR. I'm not, we're not going to flip into pledge, pledge drive mode here, Mm -hmm. but I think understanding that, that, um, the station that people care about, uh, needs to be financially stable and needs to be growing and needs to to take the to have the the um, the space to to uh, to change course when it needs to change course in order to thrive long into the future. I got to be thinking. My job is to think about the next forty years, and I and I say that with um, just the most utmost um, respect for um, uh, what Laura and her teams for. For 25 years, have done what we what you do here on the on on the the news roundup. Um, this is important work, and we're 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 continuing this work going forward, just in new ways. 
Is the elimination of the exchange and the weekly news roundup taking New Hampshire out of NHPR, a public service organization? I should mention that's a, that's a comment in an email from Katie. That wasn't that wasn't yours. <laughs> no, that, that was um, Katie's uh, question. No, no, not at all. I, I, at the risk of repeating myself, um, uh, NHPR has um, um, you know a, a, a twenty person um, uh, local newsroom, a dozen people in our podcast teams who do stories that are uh, uh, and episodes that are deeply rooted in New Hampshire. Um, the uh, the NHPR version of Morning Edition that you'll hear at this time, um, beginning next month, um, will be rich with New Hampshire content. NHPR.org um, is um, a, a, a website that is filled um, with New Hampshire news that is uh, important news, whether it's the, the breaking news of the day, whether it's the contextualization of, of bigger stories, whether it's the investigative reporting that that Casey, who I heard on earlier today, mm -hmm. uh, does along with many of her colleagues or that our document investigative team uh, does. We are deeply, deeply invested in, um, in finding out the important stories of New Hampshire and holding New Hampshire uh, officials and institutions in, accountable, including ourselves. I'm here talking to you about, about tough things. There's no diminishment of New Hampshire in New Hampshire Public Radio. We're building and growing into the future. So uh, uh, instead of the exchange starting July 5th, listeners will hear an extra hour of morning edition between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. Uh, you said the plan is to get more local content into that nationally syndicated program. So what's that going to look and sound like? Well, I think... Um, the the teams are working on that now. Um, the uh, uh, I, I'm I've been a journalist for forty years, and I've now been a um, a, a a business executive at NHPR for uh, just about a year and a half. And and my current job is to uh, in in regards to our journalism is is largely to say to our journalists, here's here is the 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 challenge ahead, and um, uh, and now I need you. I need to give you the space to go and and invent. What I've what I've um, encouraged our 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 news director uh, Dan Barrick, our managing editor Corey Princell, voices you hear you hear on the radio. What I've invited them to invite people like you, Peter and and, and Rick Gadley and our and our producers and reporters to think about is how do we enrich. Uh, morning edition, not just from nine to ten, but but you know all morning long with um, with more um, opportunities for 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 live and local content. I've suggested to them strategically that you know we want we want to help encourage people to build the habit of tuning in, so that you know you can tune in for things that you know that at at X time on on Wednesdays or something like that, you know you'll hear something wonderful that you care about in the in the in the nature of mm -hmm. something wild and and ask sam and and other other features that are regularly recurring i've asked them to well, think about ways to make sure that we highlight our 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 journalists 
that we that we um, highlight our local journalism, and that we do this in concert with the audience, that we, 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 we bring people along on the experiment and get feedback as to what's working for people. Well, we should leave it there. NHPR's President and CEO, Jim Schachter, thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you so much, Peter. And that is it for the Roundup for today. And again, this is the last time I'll be hosting the Roundup uh, since this show will end along with the exchange at the end of the month. Uh, A guest host will take to the bike for the final show on June 24th, uh, rather 25th. I am so grateful to have had this opportunity to be with you on Friday mornings, and I'll be back with you on Monday and Tuesday, Monday, when we talk to Laura Canoy about her extraordinary career. The Exchange is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio, and today's show is produced by Exchange producer Jane Vaughn. Our senior producer is Christina Phillips. Jessica Hunt also produces the show. Our engineer is Dan Colgan, and our executive producer is Michael Brindley. I'm Peter Biello. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great weekend. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. Thanks.